Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a special edition of The Wonky Show. I'm Rachel Firth, who normally hosts three lovely guests chatting through the latest in HG policy. But don't worry, we'll be back to that next week. But this week, we have a little treat for you all. Every week last season on the podcast, we delve deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Radcliffe, please enjoy an uninterrupted box set style binge listen of the hidden history of HE. I think one of the things about university history is that um, we've always had it. We've always been interested in the in the previous history and what's been going on. So my favourite little bit is the fight between Oxford and Cambridge to be the oldest. So they set off, um, and we, the historians, know that um, there's learning happening all over the place, and slowly it coalesces into universities. But we know that Cambridge gets a big shot in the arm when um, there's a big riot in Oxford, and sufficient students and um, lecturers go over to Cambridge and get it going. And it's 1209, and it's fine, uh, and off they go. Um, but that sets up a precedence that clearly, if people left Oxford to go to Cambridge, then Oxford must be older than Cambridge. But all of the kind of precedence sits on who's the oldest university. So they get to the uh, 17th century, and this isn't enough. So you get this battle between these mad antiquarians as to who can be the oldest university. And they start producing books. So, I mean, this would be great, but referable stuff. Um, and they start making up quotes in order to guarantee that my university is older than your university. So Oxford kind of kicks off um, by saying that it was founded by King Alfred. Uh, so that puts it about 400 years older than it ought to be. But King Alfred founds it, and they find um, a quote uh, that a guy sticks into a translation of Asser's Life of Alfred, saying that St. Grimble came over to found the University of Oxford. And he just puts it in this edition of the book. Um, and it's completely bogus, but he just shoves it in. So that proves that Oxford is founded around 800. So that makes it you know, nice and old. Um, but then, in a next edition they decide that that's not enough. So they find an even older quote, and that says that Grimble didn't found it, he reformed it, and that it had been founded 400 years earlier than that uh, by a bunch of um, Anglo-Saxon saints, um, and they list all those saints out, and that's all very nice, and so they got a list of these people, um, and so they're much older, so clearly they've, they managed to push that back. And why is that? Well, Cambridge has meantime got to found that they've been founded by someone called uh, Canterbury's, uh, and um, he's been helped by King Arthur. So that pushes them earlier than King Alfred. So uh, they've been founded by King Arthur, and King Arthur's gone and found Athenian philosophers uh, to come over, um, and he's made his university, and they're, so they're much older uh, than Oxford. So clearly there's then a reaction. And so Oxford seems to trump the entire thing by coming up with this ruse, and it, it, it coalesces with the idea that England must be really old and ancient. It can't just be you know, an accident of um, successive waves of people invading it. So they were founded by the Trojans, who had escaped the siege of Troy, and they'd sailed around the Mediterranean, and they had arrived, and they'd set up the University of Oxford. Um, and to deal with the fact that there's a small issue of there not being any Greek temples in Oxford to prove that it's actually you know, founded 2,000 years before Christ, um, they had this extra embellishment that it was burned down by the Romans. So they're so old that they were burned down by the Romans. So this backwards and forwards in order to get precedence 
produces these books. So each of the universities has a published book that lists their history up to the conquest, 1066. We know that the universities could not have been in existence until at least 100 years after. But these guys have produced these fabulous books saying, we're so old that we've been going for so long. One of the interesting things, if you think about um, the development of the English Higher Education Centre, is how come the Scots, by the end of the 16th century, have uh, five universities and the English only have two. Aberdeen has as many universities as England has. So why does this, we end up in this very strange situation? Well, one of those key reasons is that Oxford and Cambridge get quite comfortable being universities and they are very good at patronising the king and getting the king to stop other universities. So there are two key examples of where um, the established universities kill off the opposition that they have. So the first of these is the University of Northampton. So Northampton, which now has a perfectly nice university, uh, doesn't have any lecture theatres, but it has a perfectly nice university, um, and its um, original university in the city uh, was founded way back at uh, the time of Henry III, um, and it's another offshoot. So um, problems at Oxford, some of the students get up and go, they coalesce in Northampton. But the problem is that it, this is a, a time of civil war, uh, and so the students there, although the university gets going, uh, they picked the wrong side. So they picked Simon de Montfort's um, rebels. And so when the King's army comes near Northampton, uh, they use their arrows uh, and, and bows, uh, or their bows and arrows even, uh, to fire on the King's troops. So this doesn't endear the King to the students of Northampton, because they're clearly rebellious and they don't like them. Uh, but meanwhile, the University of Oxford has decided, well, it's not very keen on Northampton. It's a bit close in terms of its monopoly. And it petitions the king to say, can we have this place uh, stopped? Because it, it will harm uh, our city of Oxford. And he gets the bishops on his side. Uh, and therefore, the king has a writ. Uh, and the University of Northampton is dissolved and got rid of. Um, and the other, the other attempt comes in Stamford in Lincolnshire, which sadly doesn't have a university to this day. So a fine FE college, but no university. Um, and it gets another offshoot university. Uh, a group of rebellious scholars uh, get up and go. Um, migration is a technique used all over Europe to found new universities. So they migrate and off they go. Uh, but again, there's a petition from the two existing universities to have it stopped. Uh, and so they um, uh, get the king to issue another writ. Uh, and what's fun in its kind of scheme of things, is Oxford inserts a clause into the oath that you swear to become a master. When you take your master of arts degree, you swear an oath. You uphold the statutes of the university, but you also uphold an oath never to teach at Stanford. So in the oath that they then continue to swear for the next 500 years, everyone is absolutely saying that you'll only teach at Oxford and Cambridge and never at Stanford. So they have to get rid of this clause in the beginning of the 19th century because actually some people say, well, I can't teach at UCL. What becomes UCL? Because I swear on this oath that I can't possibly do this anymore. Oh, that's wildly out of date. So Oxford and Cambridge do their best to get rid of uh, other universities. The first European university, the thing that we think of, now there's a, a debate about whether um, African and um, Middle Eastern uh, cities had things that are effectively universities and they you know, seriously antedate the European university. But the thing that we think of as a university, the universitas, is a guild. And it's first set up as a guild uh, by a bunch of uh, law students who've gathered in Bologna. Uh, and their problems are um, issues with the townspeople who keep trying to fleece them, um, but also issues with the people who are teaching them. So the university, the guild of people in that city... Um, 
is formed of the students. So it's a guild of the students. Universitas means the collection of everybody in a place doing something. You can have a universitas of cobblers. In this case, it's a universitas of students. So they set up a guild, and it has a set of rules. And the rules are relatively straightforward for the students. Um, there's a set of rules about not fighting each other. But apart from that, it's very limited in terms of student regulations. All the regulations are all about the staff. So they're all about um, the staff are supposed to uh, turn up on time. There's some very strict rules about they have to start when they have to start the lectures and when they have to finish them and if the lecture's going on for too long the students are obliged to get up and go to show that their displeasure at the uh, uh, at this kind of tardiness um, there's clear rules about following the curriculum not skimping on the hard bits making the students making sure the students understand the curriculum properly um, and not getting into uh, any of the dubious uh, you know, teaching the coasting bits so they've got to make that clear the staff have to swear allegiance to the student's rector um, they uh, aren't allowed out of town without asking permission to the students uh, they have to get permission to do that and obviously the way the staff get paid is through the student fee so yeah, there's a clear economical link but the students have all these rules when you get to northern European universities they're more theological in focus and so it's the bishop's chancellor who takes charge of organisation and these become masters universities so northern European universities are masters and scholars universities whereas a group of the Italian and southern European universities are student universities so you get this this dichotomy of organisational structures in the 17th century the big motif is religious um, intolerance so the first university the first English university founded um, after um, Oxford and Cambridge and that really gets going is it's in Massachusetts so a group of English people are having uh, a terrible time with religious oppression so they sail uh, across the Atlantic which is not a pleasant experience and they set up Harvard um, they attract some money uh, from uh, Mr Harvard he gives them the cash they set up a college where they can be free they don't want to send their sons back across the Atlantic uh, to Oxford and Cambridge where they will get a, a poor uh, religious experience because they won't get the right kind of religious uh, teaching. They're also a bit nervous about sending them across the Atlantic because this is a very dangerous thing to do. So they set up their own college. Um, so you start with a sense of people having their own religious uh, experience. The English Civil War is full of examples of what happens to English universities. Obviously, in both cases, armies camp out in those cities, so that becomes very problematic. But as you go through, uh, fellows are excluded from each side. So the parliamentarians will come and chuck out all the uh, high church people. Uh, then after the uh, Civil War, the high church people get back and the, the Puritans are thrown out again. Uh, and we go back through these cycles. Um, it comes to a peak under James II because uh, he starts including Catholics into the Protestant universities. And there's a huge... And there's a strong case for saying that... Um, his behaviour in trying to put uh, Catholics into Magdalen College, Oxford, is the tipping point that induces the rebellion against him and ends his reign. So student politics or getting students into university could be said. Uh, it's a bit te uh, tenuous, but there's a sense of, well, hang on a second, we could, we, this could be a really big problem. So 
in terms of the religious conflict, you've got a whole setup of this is really complicated stuff. Oxford and Cambridge are the king's universities. Um, they have uh, become religious uh, in flavour, uh, and therefore getting the right people in there who are going to teach the young becomes very important. So you get various bits of what now seem to be absolutely extraordinary legislation that comes in that sets out who should be in these universities and who's allowed. So the first one is the Act of Uniformity in 1662. So uh, for anyone who's keen on the Book of Common Prayer, this is this is where that comes from. But it says that any head, fellow chaplain or tutors in any college hall or house of learning, every public professor and reader of either of the universities has got to sign the declaration and acknowledgement. So they've got to sign up to being a Church of England uh, person. Um, if they don't get a license from the bishop, um, they could suffer the fate of three months imprisonment. So if you don't get the bishop's license, you can be locked up for three months. So this is a really harsh penalty on anyone who's in, in a position of saying, well, I, I want to teach, but you'll get locked up for three years. So after we've had the James II experience uh, and everyone's uh, very keen that Catholics aren't allowed anywhere near uh, universities um, and the test acts are in place, uh, there's a slight um, uh, variation on that on William and Mary uh, with the Act of Toleration, which allows dissenters to worship, and they ease off on um, dissenters, i.e. You know, Baptists and Methodists, are being allowed to teach people at all, and they set, are allowed effectively to set up what have become known in retrospect as dissenting academies. So these are one-man bands to start with. Uh, you get a master who will then teach the students. Slowly over time, some of them survive. So they, they, someone else takes it over and they get kind of corporate status. And some of them get to be really good. So some of them are probably offering a better education that you could get in Oxford or Cambridge because they're up to date. They believe in teaching science. They're less keen on Aristotle um, than the Oxford uh, curriculum. So they start to, to really get going. Now, there's a great project at Queen Mary College uh, looking at dissenting academies, and they reckon there's about 220 of these colleges between the um, 17th and 19th century. So there's lots of them, and they educate. They've tracked something 11,000 students. So these are getting, in total, probably as big as Oxford and Cambridge are themselves. So, so some of them are really important. But the, the fact that they build this demand sets the tone for the beginning of the 19th century and effectively the sense that why are we excluding dissenters, so good Protestants, why are we excluding these people from universities? And it sets the, the, the kind of um, the background for what will become uh, the University of London and University College Cambridge uh, um, and King's College. So you, you get a beginning point, so you get a kind of sense of um, we're going to take these things forward. But people, you know, big name people like Joseph Priestley, they come through the dissenting academies. They're, this is the best place in England to get a top class education. If you want a top class education otherwise, certainly by the 18th century, you've either got to go to Belgium or you've got to go to Scotland. Because what happens at Oxford and Cambridge is effectively you're joining a hunting club um, with a lot of booze attached because there isn't much education going on. And, and generally, there's a sense from scholars that everything is kind of a bit fallen apart by then. But they obviously, they come right in the end to become the beacons of excellence. So one of the issues du jour is the issue of a commuting university. What are we doing for commuting students? Well, um, one of the biggest reforms in the 19th century was to set up a commuter university. Um, what originally was called the University of London, we know it now as University College London. And it was set up explicitly 
to be a commuter university because the vices of the residential university, Oxford and Cambridge, were so obvious to everyone that you wanted to avoid that at all costs. So um, the pitch comes in a, a staged letter to the Times from Thomas Campbell to Lord Broome, in which he sets out a kind of prospectus for a university. He goes on to, to, to embellish it some more. But the prospectus is, is pretty clear, that there's a group of people who are not being catered for in the higher education sector, and they are the middling rich. This is the group we need to go after, he says. These are the people who have some money, uh, can't afford the expense of sending their uh, kids, uh, their sons. Uh, sadly, uh, all the stuff is about sons. We can't explore the expense of sending our sons off to university. It will cost you far too much. Uh, so we need something for them to stay at home and commute to university. Now, Campbell works this all out. He works out how many middling rich families are within a two-hour walk of UCL. Uh, uh, so if he puts it in Bloomsbury, he knows how many people, you know, what his catchment is. Um, he sets out what might happen to them. So that they go, they'll come, they'll have breakfast early at home. Uh, they'll come in for several hours, uh, receive instruction. They can uh, stay in the university in that time. And then they'll go home again, uh, always in the hours of daylight, uh, to their parents' houses, where the parents will be in charge of them. So, and he says in the letter, their parents might know how every minute of every day of their life was employed. So the idea that parents are completely in charge, uh, in the original um, sense of the perspectives of the place, he, he imagines a weekly report going home with the students uh, to show what they've done during that week. And the idea is, is to save vast amounts of money uh, for uh, families that might have a couple of thousand pounds a year income, uh, and this won't be ruinous. Uh, it won't be ruinous in terms of the cost, but also it won't be ruinous in terms of sending your son away where you have no idea what they're doing for eight weeks uh, and all that you might get is bills sent back um, from uh, their ruinous life in Oxford or Cambridge. So you've got much more control of them. It's also really important because what you do on Sunday is your decision. So it doesn't matter what church you go to because it's not the University of London's problem which church you go to on Sunday. So it can avoid the question of religious tests because it's not in charge of your morality. So it doesn't matter to them how you pray. Um, you can get on and do it. So as far as they're concerned, that gets them out of the problem about dissenters, gets them from about uh, Jews. They're in a position where it, that's not their problem. So if you can come and study the instruction, your parents are going to look after your morality. That's not our job. So they won't teach religion because there's no need for you to be taught religion because you'll be going to the, you know, the church of your choice. Um, you won't need to get it from us. Uh, it's full of really um, up-to-date ideas. So in order to get it going, um, they need uh, to set up a company. So it's set up a, a company and it's supposed to have subscribers. And the good news about being a subscriber is that you pay your £100 and then you can send a student. So as a shareholder, you get a guaranteed place at university for your son uh, as a kind of recompense for that. So that's an interesting prospect. Um, uh, uh, it would be good for the new College of the Humanities if they've gone for that route. Um, so you can set it up. The uh, professoriate aren't going to be funded out of um, endowments. They're just going to collect the student fees. So they're going to be paid out of the student fees. Uh, so that's how they're going to get funded. They're going to get spread across lots more uh, disciplines. And to mark the whole thing off, um, it emerges very quickly that what they want to do is have much more open study. Uh, Campbell goes on a trip to Berlin to look at the new university there. Uh, he receives correspondence for how the University of Virginia is set up. So he wants to have a much more elective system. Students can study whatever they want. He brings in professors in all sorts of practical subjects. So it's not just learning the classics. Uh, and so he sets up a, a, a different kind of understanding of how that should be. Pretty soon, there's a reaction. 
because how can this place uh, be saying it's going to offer a degree if there's no religious instruction, if no one has a sense of the morals of, of, the, of the men that have passed through it? So the kind of reactionary uh, approach to the Tories set up their own campaign to set up a college, uh, and they get the King's support, which is why King's College um, gets to be set up in opposition to the University of London, and it sets up to do pretty much the same kind of thing, commuting students, um, a wider range of uh, subjects, but with religious education at, at its heart. So they want to be a different kind of setup, but within the sphere of the Church of England, because that's important to them. So the two colleges get off um, issuing certificates because they don't have degree awarding powers, because Parliament won't award degree awarding powers to um, uh, UCL, as we, as we know it now. Uh, and so eventually the compromise comes in 1836 that the University of London is set up as a kind of effectively a government department to award degrees. So if you were looking for an exciting parallel with the OFS, uh, the OFS validation powers uh, to set up and, and approve colleges that come to it and say, can, can we have a degree? You could say, well, there's a parallel in 1836 in terms of the original University of London. What's interesting, of course, is the University of London has to say what's in the degree. So that takes away some of the reforming uh, zeal of, of what had been at UCL because they now have to conform to this, this new uh, BA degree that the University of London puts together. But from that springs, A, the ability for someone to be taught at a college that isn't part of uh, the direct University of London, so that enables places all over the country and in turn all over the empire to teach the University of London degree. Uh, but it also means the University of London can start to think about other subjects. So it starts to think, well, what would it look like to have a, just a science degree? Uh, and so they can start to think about that. And so there's a petition to have a, the first science degree. They can start to think about what it would look like. Um, there's a petition to set up a social science degree. So they can start to expand the range of subjects uh, that come into the university and specialisms can develop from there. Durham University is set up in order to extract uh, the vast wealth of the Bishop of Durham, put it to useful purpose. And so they, they get off and set off in a very... Um, uh, clear mode that they're like uh, Oxford and Cambridge colleges, uh, traditional curriculum, although they do branch out and do new and exciting things like an engineering course. Um, but what happens later is there's a civic need for uh, higher education. So Owens, uh, uh, John Owens, is uh, a merchant and he sees well, what Manchester needs is its own college. So he founds, by giving them a, a sizable amount of money in his bequest, a college to be set up. And obviously they, they said, oh, this is great, we'll have a university. The other towns in the north say, oh, no, you can't have a university on your own. We have to have something along the same kind of lines. And so there's a sense that, well, you can't possibly set up just one college to do that. So Owens is refused, after it's been going for a few years, the right to become a university. So what it gets is a federal university, an examining university, kind of similar to the University of London. Um, so the university will set the exams and Col Owens College will do the teaching. Now, the weird thing is, for the first couple of years, it's only Owens College is the only college of this, and the Victoria University uh, only has the one college. But Liverpool and Leeds both get their act together and set up colleges and apply to join. And so over time, they get a federal university, which is a bit of an awkward compromise. Uh, the federal university is chaired in turn by the vice-chancellors of the different universities. They all teach the same curriculum. The students all take the same examination. They're all graduates of the Victoria University. Uh, and that's ticking along okay uh, until Birmingham wants to develop its college. It's got a college. It's got a, found, uh, a generous uh, donor, uh, Josiah Mason, who's given them uh, plenty of cash. He's a businessman. Uh, and they're setting off in the same way. They're going to have a federal university too. There's going to be a university of the Midlands. There's talk in uh, Bristol of a university of the Southwest. This is the pattern we're all going to go to. But 
they instead of uh, proceeding on their happy path, Joseph Chamberlain becomes uh, the uh, president of Josiah Mason College. Incidentally, he was a business competitor of Josiah Mason, uh, but he becomes president of this college, and part of his big thing for Birmingham is to take this college forward. But he's also made rector of Glasgow University, so he spends quite a lot of time in Glasgow, and he likes two things about that. Firstly, he likes the fact that they've taken the campus out of the city centre and put it in an attractive new campus. So he likes that idea. He also likes that it's the University of Glasgow, not some kind of mixed you know, federal university, some of us. It's a university for the city, doing things for the city, and which people are very proud of. So when he comes back to Birmingham, he says, we're not having a federal university. We're going to have a university of Birmingham. We're not, you know, otherwise I'm going to give up and we're going to, you know, stuff, stuff a lot of you. So because he happens, just so happens to be a member of the cabinet, he bends the will of Wales to say we're going to have a, a single teaching university. University of Birmingham will not have any extra colleges. It'll just be a university on its own. And that will be, you know, that, that's going to be the whole of it. He gets by uh, dint of that to erase the name of Josiah Mason uh, from the name of the college. Um, obviously not part of his original plan. So the University of Birmingham goes off on its way uh, and, and Mason is, is gently let to, to be forgotten. Now, this excites the people in Liverpool because they've got their university college, but they're part of the Victoria University. And they say, hang on a second, if Birmingham can have its own university, we've got to have our own university. So they petition to have the Victoria University wound up and then become a university in their own right. So you'd expect the Victoria University to object to this a bit, but the University of um, the, the Yorkshire College really objects. Probably, the speculation is because they're a bit weedy, a bit small, and unlikely to become a university in their own right. So they make a strong objection to the winding up of the Victoria University. So Liverpool's kind of trapped. Manchester Owens College is thinking, well, we, we could be our own university, that would be quite good. Um, but Leeds is vehemently against. So the Privy Council, who's the only people in charge of universities or education at that time, forms a committee, a really high-powered committee. And the kind of people who go and pitch to this committee are Haldane, who are you know, famous for all of these other exciting higher education things, uh, 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 Sydney Webb, all sorts of really important reformers think the idea of a, a teaching university is, is worth pressing, so they hold this great committee hearing. And the minutes are fabulous, because there's just mad arguments. The people on both sides argue with each other, these senior politicians play out there all their arguments. There's some great dialogue as people say, you know, are you bringing standards down by setting up your own university? Oh, no, we're not, etc., etc. So... At the end of this, the Privy Council agree that Liverpool can be its own university. Manchester can keep the Victoria University, which incidentally is why it was called the Victoria University of Manchester through to its, its merger with UMIST. Um, but then that leaves Leeds in a slightly complicated position because Yorkshire College has been arguing that it really believes in federal universities as a way of kind of keeping the thing going. So the Privy Council turn around and say, OK, you can be a federal university. Well done. There's a college in Sheffield that'd like to join you. Now, suddenly the people in Leeds get really cold feet because they quite now fancy the idea of being their own university and don't really want to have the Firth College people in Sheffield join them in a new federal university. So they, they get cold feet about this. So they write a charter saying, hello, we'd like to be the Victoria University of Yorkshire. And they send it in. Um, but the Privy Council think, well, hang on a second. If you don't want to play this federal game, you can't be the University of Yorkshire because you don't want to include everybody in Yorkshire in it. So... There's a wonderful copy in the in the, uh, the records in the National Archives where what they do is they amend the charter by crossing out every mention of Yorkshire and writing Leeds in pen in the copy of the charter and send it back to them saying, you can have this charter, but you're going to be the University of Leeds. You can't be the University of Yorkshire. So 
it's the beginning of the end of the federal principle. When it comes to it, the uh, universities in um, uh, the, the colleges that form the Southwest, they're not keen. Um, the, the final attempt is to set one up in the East Midlands. Um, and so when they lay the foundation stone at the University of Nottingham, there's still a sense uh, in the 20s that they might found a, uh, an East Midlands university. But Loughborough and Leicester aren't keen. They want to have their own universities eventually. And the federal principle in England dies off. It drags on a bit in Wales uh, until eventually Cardiff wants to pull out and then the other institutions want to pull out. And the survivor in the UK is the Federal University of London and all of the excitement about uh, can they be a university with universities in them, which we're looking to find out what happens with the exciting University of London bill um, making its way through Parliament at the moment. If you were to pitch up at an English university in the middle of the 19th century, um, and asked to see the research facilities, you would be very disappointed because there, there were none. Firstly, the universities were mostly concerned with uh, non-experimental sciences, so you, you wouldn't be shown to any great laboratories. There were some laboratories the students were allowed to, to do things in. But original research was not, even in the humanities, something that they thought was important. So much so that if you go to the work of Cardinal Newman, his um, very important lectures uh, on the idea of the university, he's quite dismissive of the idea of generating uh, uh, new knowledge. Uh, if the object of a university was scientific and philosophical discover discovery, I do not see why a university should have students. He's very clear that it's not any of their business. And, and certainly there are plenty of examples, and, and Oxford does very well at coming up with these examples, of why universities uh, shouldn't do research, they shouldn't do science, this isn't their business. Uh, discovery of knowledge is, is nothing much to do with them. So one of the great reformers of the University of Oxford is uh, Master of Balliol, Benjamin Jowett, um, and he has this great idea uh, that he, he reforms all sorts of things. Universities hated by some conservatives, but one of the things he's very clear on is that re you know research is is not the kind of thing that his university should be doing because it threatened the whole tutorial and examination system, which was making Oxford into the highest of high school for boys. So for him, it was a really bad thing, and he came up with this idea, someone talking to him, um, research, the master exclaimed, research, he said, a mere excuse for idleness. It has never achieved and will never achieve results of the slightest value. So this is the head of Balliol, uh, very clear that, that this, is, this is not something that should happen. Clearly, there's a, an ongoing movement. There's what you get is this interaction between the new universities, places like Manchester, who start to borrow the apparatus of the research university, which is developed in the US and developed from Germany, and they work out that actually useful knowledge is a useful to the locale, but actually is generating new things. So they do, both do a, a, what we might think of as applied, but also basic research. So you start to get a development. Um, Cambridge sets up the Cavendish Laboratory in 1874 and gets an extraordinary range of people who, who come. Nobel Prizes developed very quickly. Uh, you know, the fundamentals of the universe are understood by people at Cambridge. Uh, this idea that we should advance knowledge is, is now seen as something they sh uh, that we should get on to. Um, there is an association with um, uh, Lord Kelvin, who's at Glasgow University for an extraordinary amount of time. Uh, but this is a man who... Uh, perfects underwater cables, who does temperature, who does all sorts of things, you know, you know, polyglot of, of thinking about what a university should be doing, discovering things. But uh, in other places, this is still seen as, as definitely a, a bad idea. And it only really 
um, finally gets cemented after the First World War, when the useful knowledge that universities have contributed towards the war is actually seen by both government and by society as something that is, is worth reflecting. And it certainly wins the argument finally in Oxford that you know, university research is the kind of thing that they should be doing and they start to set up the major facilities that they have uh, and, it, and it really kicks on from there. Next up, more stories to be used at dinner parties and upcoming family gatherings. But before we listen to more of Mike's wonderful tales, I want to tell you about our new Wonky Plus subscription, giving you even more essential HE policy insight and access to extra wonky benefits. Along with the Wonky Daily delivered to your inbox at 8am every day, you'll get access to the Termly Briefing, an horizon scan and sense check about everything happening in HE policy, ideal for those who can't follow every twist and daily turn. And as a plus subscriber, you get exclusive free access to our monthly event, Wonky Live, so you can keep up to date on all the moving and shaking in HE policy in person with Team Wonky and experts from across the sector. You get free use of the Wonky Jobs Board, plus everyone from your organisation gets discounted rates on Wonky events and early access to tickets, including Wonkfest, which always sells out quickly. For more information, contact us on briefing at wonky.com or you can visit the website wonky.com forward slash plus. So how do women get their way into universities? clear way that it starts to develop is that universities um, are now working as examining bodies. So the university sets the exam and students in the colleges come and take um, the exams. So there's an exam to get in and then there's an exam as you go through the university because the matriculation exam, the exam to show that you've got the knowledge to get into university, becomes in effect a a qualification in its own right. So um, Emily Davis, uh, who writes a book, uh, a whole series of things on... uh, uh, why women should be allowed into higher education. Good to actually get a, a reference to that rather than me rambling like that. Um, Emily Davis um, sets out the argument quite clearly that what she wants when she's educating uh, a small group of women in a small domestic setting is a searching examination indispensable as a guarantee for the qualifications of teachers. She wants the women to have the test of sitting the examination. So what she wants is effectively a copy of the exam paper that the men are taking, um, and she wants to be able to set that as an exam for her uh, female students to take. So that's all she wants. She doesn't want degrees. She doesn't want them to be taught alongside them. She just wants them to be able to take the same exam as the same kind of spur to their learning that the men are having to do. So she sets off in that kind of way. And we get small domestic scale colleges set up on that way. In London, you get Bedford College. Uh, Girton College is set up near Cambridge. The idea being that um, the men from the universities, the professors, could come and give some lessons um, to the women, uh, and therefore they get the same kind of learning. But obviously, they're not met, they're not part of the university, not not engaged in the overall work. So uh, that lasts um, for about uh, 20, 30 years. That kind of system uh, is okay, but that starts to come really tested when the civic universities have to think: Are they going to let women? in at the same point as men. And there's quite an opening up uh, that comes, but it has to be worked its way through. So as an example, Owens College um, comes under pressure in the 1870s to admit uh, women to its lectures. And so it says, well, yes, we, we agree that we should have an experiment, but they can't join our college we'll set up a separate college. So they set up the Manchester and Salford Women's College um, to run alongside Owens College. Um, uh, and that lasts three years until the committee says, well, 
can you not just take charge of it? And then they said, well, after a couple more years, they go, well, yeah, actually, that's that's not really working out. We'll set up a women's department. So slowly, the, the women gain entry to the university. At UCL, um, which decides it also wants to uh, teach women, um, it also has this worry about co-education. It's not clear that this is a good thing for either of the two sexes. So it has a go uh, at segregating the men from the women. So it has to think. It's going to use the same premises. Uh, so it has to think how it's going to do that. Uh, it doesn't want them mixing. They have to have separate lectures. They have to use separate laboratories. Uh, so it has this brainwave that it doesn't want them mingling uh, in between lectures even uh, of putting the women's lectures on the half hour um, so that they can't possibly mingle with the men because they, they won't even be in the corridors at the same time because their lectures are staggered. And they adapt the laboratories to put in different entrances so that women can come in from a different entrance to the men so that there's a, a clear segregation. Now, again, that doesn't last over time. And, and, and eventually, you know, quite quickly, they relent uh, and co-education comes from, from that. But that idea that mixing the students is going to be a major problem continues to the 19th century. So when Thomas Holloway sets out to uh, make a, a major uh, bequest, his wife has persuaded him that what he really wants to do uh, is set up uh, the best education suitable for women of the middle and upper classes. Another great access statement uh, uh, quote. Um, uh, he sets up sufficient money to found a women's college. He puts it nicely out of the way and obviously in the most splendid building you can possibly imagine um, but it's an idea that it's going to be a, a women's college uh, and it will set off. There's a big discussion in, in the late 1890s as whether it should be the nucleus of a women's university so a whole university and an examining university just for women uh, but eventually they decide they should join the University of London and they go off in that basis. So Oxford and Cambridge have now got these colleges nearby which are educating people in the same curriculum, but they are not members of the university. So they've got this kind of beginning of a mingling because Oxford and Cambridge is full of independent colleges, so you could put a women's college in either of those two cities and it can educate people to the same thing. They can go, eventually they're allowed access to the same lectures, um, but they have to work out what to do. So um, the Cambridge uh, solution, which comes after a lot of agitation from uh, progressive uh, academic staff to say, well, we should have women as members of the university. But a lot of reaction from uh, what I, you know, we have to call the reactionary clergy, who are all members of the university and have the right to vote on any university statute, who can come back by train to vote down any clauses that might look like um, that uh, women might be allowed in. And there's a big celebration when they vote down the clause that women should be admitted to the university. They have a, there's a great picture of it, of um, a huge throng outside King's College and men celebrating the fact that they've kept women out of the university. They have a, an effigy of a woman on a bike. Uh, she's wearing bloomers because they're worried that women are going to be riding around Cambridge in their bloomers. The whole place is going to change. And they get so excitable uh, that they go out to one of the women's colleges and rattle the gates so violently that women are scared inside that the, the, the you know, violence is going to be done to them. So they get very overexcited. So what they end up with is this wonderful if you're part of this internal thing, compromise, whereby the women can take the exams, continue to take the exams, and they can be admitted as students, um, but they can't become members of the university by getting the degree. So they get to know how well they did in the exam, but they don't get the BA or MA degree, and they're not allowed to do that. Now, unfortunately, because Cambridge has this big reaction against it, um, they don't try... Uh, during the interwar years to overturn it or that it gets put back. So it's only in 1948 
that the University of Cambridge admits its first woman graduate, who is an honorary graduate. The, um, Queen Elizabeth uh, is admitted as the as the first uh, woman graduate of the University of Cambridge. So a huge amount of, of tussle about this. So Cambridge has a very strict list system in terms of its thing. So women knew that they were best in their year at the subject, but didn't get the degree. So obviously, uh, things are much, much better now. Everything is solved. Uh, there's no problems at all. Uh, and that's all fine. There's a, obviously a series of gradations about uh, Oxford colleges becoming mixed, um, about uh, the ability of women to become academic staff. You know, so we better and better and better. But if you think how many, you know, we're, we're dealing with a generation that was alive in 1948. This is a generation that women could not graduate at all. Yeah. One of our universities until after that point. So, one of the questions that arises from educating women is should they have a special curriculum for women? Should they be doing the same as men? What's going to be happening? Though you have to put this in context, it's very important not to take historical things out of context and, and laugh at people in the past. Never want to do that. Um, but if, in the context of what women's careers were like, well, what would a, what would a useful degree for women uh, look like? So the King's College Department of Women um, has decided that it, it's going to explore what that might look like. And it gets some benefactions from outside to set up a course to think about a useful course for, for women to do. And they settled on household and social science as the model that they should they should take forward. So they start to develop a course in this. Now this quite quickly becomes uh, quite an important part of the college and they transfer back to King's um, the, the English and history and other kinds of subjects and leaving the college to really concentrate on household and social science. Now in its high day you can get a proper BSc degree uh, from the University of London in household and social science in which you learn organic and physical chemistry, general biology, applied chemistry, bacteriology, household work, special household work, institutional management. And the tests that come with this are just wonderful. So what you get is you get these lovely publication of exam papers. So uh, you, you get a sense of what people should be doing. So the exam paper uh, from 1921 uh, talks about uh, what, what should you do for economic biology? Uh, and the question is, give an account of the habits and life history of the itch mite. Um, write an essay on insects and disease. Uh, so you get this kind of breadth of, of thing. But, but what makes it clear what's going on here is the practical exam that you get to see. So one of the things you get to do is you have a day exam. Uh, you get to uh, take the exam from uh, in the morning. You get uh, uh, 10 to 1 for, for part 1. Plan meals for a day in a middle-class family for each of the seasons. Give the quantities required and compare the energy values. What principles would guide you in the choice of food? And there's a practical exam, so that's just theoretical still, so the practical exam, 10 till 4. Prepare a day's meal for a family consisting of father, mother and two children, using as little fuel as possible. Hand in the list of fresh ingredients required by 11am and calculate the price of each meal. Second part. All utensils used are to be cleaned and left for inspection. It includes the washing up. It's a wonderful idea. Now, obviously, as this is, you know, this this is not without opposition. Uh, but some years before, um, there's this wonderful uh, suffragette um, publication called The Free Woman, uh, run by a woman called Dora Marsden. And, and she's got a friend who's at this college um, uh, teaching uh, on this thing. And, and she's quite forthright about this course, uh, as you might imagine. She says, the aims of those who frame such a retrograde scheme are in radical opposition to those of women who are deserving the freedom and development of women. Uh, they aim at perpetuating women's inferiority by perfecting her in the role which puts her in the greatest 
greatest difficulties of her development. I protest that a more impudent piece of charlantry has never been perpetuated before in the history of her education. Dora Marston goes at her. Now, eventually, obviously, it wanes and it, it moves off. And, it, and what comes Queen Elizabeth College goes into more normal branches of science. Uh, but for a moment, there is this wonderful BSc degree in household and social science. One of the things I think makes history of higher education interesting is the, the amount of continuity and the amount of change that we see. So one of the things I really enjoy is looking at old regulations of how we looked after students. Um, sometimes that's quite useful because you get really good ideas of how you regulate students now in the, in the present. But I think sometimes it just shows us that we're still dealing with some of the same challenges. So my favourite set of these regulations is the Statutes of the Collegium Sapienti at Freiburg University, which were written in 1497. And they are beautiful. They are illustrated, which I think is a great idea. We should run that out across um, universities anyway. But they cover the whole of student life. They were written by a bishop who'd been working with the university for a long time. He understood what students got up to, uh, and he set out a complete set of rules. So it has everything you could possibly want to run a proper university. So it's got rules about how you uh, welcome a student to the university, how you make a list of the furnishings in their room so it gets an inventory and so that it's clear that they've got to account for everything that's in the rooms. Um, there's a system for allocating the rooms. It's done by lottery so no one can have the good rooms um, on favouritism uh, and there are quite clear rules about what time you have to go to bed and that there's study time. Everyone should be quiet. Uh, you have to clean your room once a week. There's a great set of rules for how you have to make your bed immediately after you've risen in the morning. Uh, and then you get into the excitement, which is the penalty system. So the regulation says failure to comply as a result of laziness when noticed during the weekly inspection and reported to the president shall be punished by the removal of wine. If this should happen frequently, the scholar in question shall be deprived of his bed. Now, the great thing about all of these regulations is basically the tariff system is how much wine you have removed for the different infringements you go through. Now, we have to remember that obviously um, wine was a different kind of commodity. It was you know, a drinkable uh, uh, drink. It wasn't quite the same as uh, you know, having your, your, uh, your vodka-based um, uh, confection taken away from you by the university. But that's how it works. You go through uh, and you, you get all these punishments. So there's a whole bunch of things that these people are, are, are not allowed to do. They're, they're kind of clerks in lay orders, there, so they're kind of semi-religious but it's very clear there's lots of things they shouldn't be getting on to. So uh, there's to be no loose frivolous, frivolous uh, or obscene song no blasphemy and no kinds of boasting um, dice, cards and sticks for casting lots on all games of chance are forbidden. Disregard of this rule should be punished with the loss of wine for a week. Chess however is allowed. And it goes on so there are these lovely things. So uh, again one of the things we do is we, we often contrast ourselves with uh, people in the US so there's a lot of very clear rules about no arms allowed. So you have to hand your sword into the president when you arrive at the college uh, if you need it back you can go and get it when you, you, you know, if you're going outside town uh, but you're not allowed to keep it in, in the hall and are very clear rules about no fighting in the, in the college and, and what you do with it. And as you go through the sets of regulations, each has this wonderful little illustration showing you exactly what's going on. So there's every, everything is, is beautifully set out and laid down. But it's a pocket set of rules. And most of it, uh, probably apart from the swords, is entirely applicable to the modern university. Strange rules for regulating the lives of students uh, probably reached their peak as the university started to modernise. And one of the things that brings that into sharp relief is when different kinds of people come to university. So there's a, a, a major phase after Oxford uh, has uh, admitted women 
and students have returned from after the First World War who are more mature, more engaged with the world, about how the university can control their lives. So there's a, a great moment where the uh, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford from 1920 to 1923 decides that he's going to ban elevenses because he's decided um, that this is a, a frivolous thing for students to do. They shouldn't be doing this. He's going to ban them. And so he starts working out how to do that. And he gets this petition in from the women's colleges um, complaining that um, students couldn't stand, stand the strain of going from nine to one without sustenance. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, he thinks that it would probably be a good idea if they practice social austerity. But if you look at the rules that students are having to deal with in the, in the 30s, they're just wonderful in terms of the depth. And students get this kind of panoply of bits of information telling what they can or cannot do, where they can stay, um, what they can bring with them, what they can do. So they're not allowed to, to bring a car. Now, current residents of Oxford would be delighted by the notion that it was very clear that you get a small slip of paper saying, don't bring a car to Oxford, you're not allowed. But the rules go on to set out all sorts of other things you can't do. Um, undergraduates will not loiter in the streets at coffee stalls or at the stage door of a theatre. Um, they will not take the chair at any public meetings. They're not allowed to set up magazines without permission. Um, there's a whole set of rules about um, not being allowed to take part in acting unless you've got permission. Uh, no one is allowed to um, visit any bars, uh, strictly for, forbidden from going to any of the bars in the city. Um, and there's a set of rules for how you have to organise um, dinner parties. Uh, flying is not allowed without proctorial permission. Um, you have to go and get leave before you do that. What, of course, is scary are the rules they've uh, come up with for how to handle men and women being together. So there's a whole set of rules about the amount of chaperoning that the, the women members of the university, the women who've just become undergraduates for the first time are allowed. Um, they have to have a companion approved in advance if they are to meet with a man student. Um, and they're certainly not allowed to take them uh, to their room. Um, and there's a whole set of these kind of rules that, that work, work their way through. Um, Parties of men or women undergraduates may not be held unless each woman undergraduate has previously forwarded to the proctors the written leave from the principal of her college. It is most important that academic dress should be worn. So the prospect of organising all of these things is, is great. Now, there's a, there's, I thoroughly recommend Jane Robinson's Blue Stockings books because it, it, it charts out how people actually were quietly breaking all these rules and, and, and living with them, and the, the, not all of them were, were actually enforced. But there's a real tension here about how the university has decided that it is looking after people. Now, we've seen off a minister who was excited about the notion of in loco parentis. And for those of us who've looked at this kind of rule, this is what in loco parentis meant, this kind of controlling of students' lives and I think we should be very glad that we're not trying to do that The English um, didn't use state power to set up universities. It's one of the curious things that very few occasions have the English actually used state power to set up a university. They've always bubbled up through local endeavour or through uh, benevolence. But there is an occasion, or two key occasions, when the English have used uh, state authority to set up universities. But they're both in Ireland. So Although there was an abortive attempt to set up a university in Dublin uh, in the Middle Ages, the key uh, occasion comes when Elizabeth uh, accedes to a set of uh, rules that, that you know, it would be a good idea to have a, a Protestant university uh, in Dublin. Uh, and the reason for that is set out in, in her charter to that. Uh, the idea is that knowledge and civility might be increased by the instruction of our people there, whereof many have usually heretofore used to travel into France, Italy and Spain to get learning in such foreign universities. And this is the reason why they want to have their own university, because they have been infected with popery. 
other ill qualities and so become evil subjects. So Trinity College Dublin is set up with the idea of stopping the Irish becoming evil subjects. Now, I'm not sure how uh, that goes necessarily, but it becomes a Protestant bastion, uh, bastion and therefore they, they continue on that way, uh, you know, shunned by the Catholics. The Irish bishops refuse to let their, uh, their students go there, um, and so there's a, a, a gap in terms of education available to people in Ireland. Uh, and this all comes to a head in 1845, where two um, uh, different but very contentious um, government acts uh, take place. The first is that Robert Peel decides to extend the amount of money he's going to uh, award to Maynooth College. Uh, so Maynooth College is a Catholic seminary. Uh, it's now developed into a multifunction university. But the notion of giving state money to train Catholic priests is an anathema. Uh, seriously splits the, the government, causes huge rows. The pamphleteers go crazy. There are long debates in Parliament about it. But it really comes to the heart of, should the, should the government uh, be supporting Catholics? And, and there's a lot of rather nasty um, uh, business. And Peel describes uh, that the clamour against the Maynooth Bill was the most senseless and atrocious display of calumny, hatred, bigotry and bad feeling which ever disgraced any country. Obviously he didn't have to deal with Brexit, um, but there we go. So there's a sense of, of the, the disgrace, you know, the real problem about setting up money to, to, to educate Catholics. The other thing he tries in 1845 is to set up uh, a range of government-run colleges. So these, uh, which he, he has the idea that they'll be set up um, around the country. There's a bit of a, a clamour as to which towns get them, but eventually they're set up in Cork, Galway and Belfast. Um, uh, these are godless colleges um, in the model of uh, University College uh, London. Uh, there's no religious instruction allowed in them. Uh, they're very clear that they've, they've got to be done. There's a weird moment that all of the architects chosen all copy Oxford buildings in order to build them. Uh, so uh, Queen's in particular gets a copy of uh, Magdalen College Tower. So they, they build them in a very Oxford kind of a way. Um, but there's still a problem that they're, because they're now godless colleges, they're not teaching religion, the Irish Catholics still refuse to send their students to these, these institutions. Um, so you, you end up with this problem that um, there's now disagreement as to whether or not an Irish Catholic student could go to uh, a university and be taught by a Protestant, uh, and vice versa. So there's this, you, know, you couldn't possibly talk about it. Peel again comes to this point that, you know, how, how can this be sensible? Um, how can we say that you know, it would be uh, sensible for... Um, uh, us to object to an anatomy being taught by Roman Catholics to Protestants or vice versa. Uh, what, a, what a strange situation that is. The Irish bishops um, are sufficiently uh, concerned by this that they decide to set up their own university. So um, what they do is uh, sensibly invite uh, John Henry Newman to come across. Uh, he comes across to, to start the Catholic University in Ireland as a, as a, a small uh, outfit to do that. Uh, and, and the key reason this is important is he, he gives some lectures to explain why it would be a good idea to have a, a classical education uh, and they form the basis of, of the idea of the university which is still one of the classic uh, foundations. So this system continues. Um, there's a, a federal university that looks after the three colleges. It mutates into a, a royal university which allows um, religious heritage institutions uh, in 1880 to join it. So that allows the Catholic University in Maynooth uh, and McGee College in uh, uh, Derry to join um, and it moves on that way. And interestingly, the Irish still have that system. The National University of Ireland is is the the, the inheritor of that colonial act in 1845 to try and bring um, higher education uh, across Ireland. Uh, Queen's obviously separates out um, at the beginning of the 20th century, but it's a foundation that they still have that federal system because of Robert Pym. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.